Section 14 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Of the Street Sellers of Mineral Productions and Natural Curiosities. The class of which I have now to treat, including as it does the street sellers of coal, coke, tan-turf, salt, and sand, seem to have been called into existence principally by the necessities of the poorer classes, as the earnings of thousands of men in all the slop, slaughterhouse, or scamping branches of tailoring, shoemaking, cabinet-making, joining, and so on, have become lower and lower, they are compelled to purchase the indispensable articles of daily consumption in the smallest quantities, and at irregular times, just as the money is in their possession. This is more especially the case as regards chamber-masters and garret-masters, among the shoemakers, and cabinet-makers, who, as they are small masters, and working on their own account, have not even such a regularity of payment as the journeyman of the slop-tailor. Among these poor artisans, moreover, the wife must slave with the husband, and it is often an object with them to save the time lost in going out to the chandler's shop or the coal-shed, to have such things as coal and coke brought to their very doors, and vended in the smallest quantities. It is the same with the women who work for the slop-shirt merchants, and so on, or make cap-fronts, and so on, on their own account, for the supply of the shopkeepers, or the wholesale swagmen, who sell low-priced millinery, the street sellers of the class I have now to notice are then the principal purveyors of the very poor. The men engaged in the street sale of coal and coke, the chief articles of this branch of the street sale, are of the costermonger class, as indeed is usually the case where an exercise of bodily strength is requisite. Costermongers, too, are better versed than any other street folk in the management of barrows, carts, asses, ponies, or horses, so that when these vehicles and these animals are a necessary part of any open-air business, it will generally be found in the hands of the coster class. Nor is this branch of the street traffic confined solely to articles of necessity. Under my present enumeration will be found the street sale of shells, an ornament of the mantelpiece above the fire grate, to which coal is a necessity. The present division will complete the subject of street sale in the metropolis. Of the street sellers of coals. According to the returns of the coal market for the last few years, there has been imported into London, on an average, 3,500,000 tonnes of seaborne coal annually. Besides this immense supply, the various railways have lately poured in a continuous stream of the same commodity from the inland districts, which has found a ready sale without sensibly affecting the accustomed vend of the North Country coals, long established on the coal exchange. To the very poor, the importance of coal can be scarcely estimated. Physiological and medical writers tell us that carbonaceous food is that which produces heat in the body, and is therefore the fuel of the system. Experience tells us that this is true, 
for who that has had an opportunity of visiting the habitations of the poor, the dwellers in ill-furnished rooms and garrets, has not remarked the more than half-starved slop-needlewoman, the wretched half-naked children of the casually employed labourer, as the dockman, or those whose earnings are extorted from them by their employers, such as the ballastman, sitting crouched among the smouldering embers in the place where the fire ought to be. The reason of this is because the system of the sufferer, by long want of food, has been deprived of the necessary internal heat, and so seeks instinctively to supply the deficiency by imbibing it from some outward source. It is on this account chiefly, I believe, that I have found the ill-paid and ill-fed workpeople prize warmth almost more than food. Among the poorest Irish, I have invariably found them crowding round the wretched fire, when they had nothing to eat. The census returns of the present year, according to the accounts published in the newspapers, estimate the number of the inhabitants of London at 2,363,141, and the number of inhabited houses as 307,722. Now, if we take into consideration that in the immense suburbs of the metropolis there are branching off from almost every street labyrinths of courts and alleys teeming with human beings, and that almost every room has its separate family, for it takes a multitude of poor to make one rich man, we may be able to arrive at the conclusion that by far the greater proportion of coals brought into London are consumed by the poorer classes. It is on this account of the highest importance that honesty should be the characteristic of those engaged in the vend and distribution of an article so necessary not only to the comfort but to the very existence of the great masses of the population. The modes in which the coals imported into London are distributed to the various classes of consumers are worthy of observation as they unmistakably exhibit not only the wealth of the few, but the poverty of the many. The inhabitants of Belgravia, the wealthy shopkeepers, and many others, periodically see at their doors the well-loaded wagon of the coal merchant, with two or three swarthy coal porters, bending beneath the black heavy sacks, in the act of laying in the ten or twenty tons for yearly or half-yearly consumption. But this class is supplied from a very different quarter from that of the artisans, labourers, and many others, who, being unable to spare money sufficient to lay in at once a ton or two of coals, must have recourse to other means. To meet their limited resources, there may be found in every part, always in back streets, persons known as coal-shed men, who get the coals from the merchant in seven, fourteen, or twenty tons at a time, and retail them from a quarter of a hundredweight upwards. The coal-shed men are a very numerous class, for there is not a low neighbourhood in any part of the city which contains not two or three of them in every street. There is yet another class of purchasers of coals, however, which I have called the very poor, the inhabitants of two pairs back the dwellers in garrets, and so on. It seems to have been for the purpose of meeting the wants of this class that the street-sellers of coals have sprung into existence. 
those who know nothing of the decent pride which often lingers among the famishing poor, can scarcely be expected to comprehend the great boon that the street-sellers of coals, if they could only be made honest and conscientious dealers, are calculated to confer on these people. I have seen, says a correspondent, the starveling child of misery in the gloom of the evening steal timidly into the shop of the coal-shed man, and in a tremulous voice ask, as if begging a great favour, for seven pound of coal. The coal-shed man has set down his pint of beer, taken the pipe from his mouth, blowing after it a cloud of smoke, and in a gruff voice, at which the little wretch has shrunk up, if it were possible, into a less space than famine had already reduced her to, and demanded, Who told you as how I serve seven pound of coal? Go to Bill C. He may serve you if he likes. I won't, and that's an end on't. I wonder what people wants with seven pound of coal. The coal-shed man, after delivering himself of this enlightened observation, has placidly resumed his pipe, while the poor child, gliding out into the drizzling sleet, disappeared in the darkness. End quote. The street-sellers vend any quantity at the very door of the purchaser, without rendering it necessary for them to expose their poverty to the prying eyes of the neighbourhood. And as I have said, were the street-dealers only honest, they would be conferring a great boon upon the poorer portion of the people. But unhappily, it is scarcely possible for them to be so, and realise a profit for themselves. The police reports of the last year show that many of the coal merchants, standing high in the estimation of the world, have been heavily fined for using false weights. And did the present inquiry admit of it, there might be mentioned many other infamous practices by which the public are shamefully plundered in this commodity, and which go far to prove that the coal trade in toto is a gigantic fraud. May I ask how it is possible for the street-sellers, with such examples of barefaced dishonesty before their eyes, even to dream of acting honestly? If not actually certain, yet strongly suspecting, that they themselves are defrauded by the merchant, how can it be otherwise than that they should resort to every possible mode of defrauding their customers, and so add to the already almost unendurable burdens of the poorest of the poor, who by one means or other are made to bear all the burdens of the country. The usual quantity of coals consumed in the poorest rooms in which a family resides is half a hundredweight per week in summer, and one hundredweight, ditto, in winter, or about two tons per annum. The street sale of coals was carried on to a considerable extent during the earlier part of the last century, small coalmen being among the regular street traders. The best known of these was Tom Britton, who died through fright, occasioned by a practical joke. He was a great fosterer of a taste for music among the people, for after hawking his coals during the day, he had a musical gathering in his humble abode in the evening, to which many distinguished persons resorted. This is alluded to in the lines by Hughes, under Tom Britton's portrait, and the allusion, according to the poetic fashion of the time, being made by means of a strained classicality. Quote, Silenius so as fables tell, and Jove came willing guests to poor Philemon's grove. End quote. 
The trade seems to have disappeared gradually, but has recently been revived in another form. Some few years ago, an ingenious and enterprising costermonger, during a slack in his own business, conceived the idea of purchasing some of the refuse of the coals at the wharfs, conveying them round the poorer localities of his beat, in his ass or pony cart, and vending them to room-keepers and others, in small quantities and at a reduced rate, so as to undersell the coal-shed men, while making for himself a considerable profit. The example was not lost upon his fraternity, and no long time had elapsed before many others had started in the same line. This eventually took so much custom from the regular coal-shed men, that, as a matter of self-defence, those among them who had a horse and cart found it necessary to compete with the originators of the system in their own way, and being possessed of more ample means, they succeeded in a great measure in driving the costers out of the field. The success of the coal-shed men was for a time so well followed up that they began by degrees to edge away from the lanes and alleys, extending their excursions into quarters somewhat more aristocratic, and even there establishing a trade amongst those who had previously taken their ton or half-ton of coals from the brass-plate merchant, as he is called in the trade, being a person who merely procures orders for coals, gets some merchant who buys in the coal market to execute them in his name, and manages to make a living by the profits of these transactions. Some of this latter class consequently found themselves compelled to adopt a mode of doing their business somewhat similar, and for that purpose hired vans from the proprietors of those vehicles, loaded them with sacks of coals, drove round among their customers, prepared to furnish them with sacks or half-sacks as they felt disposed. Finally, many of the van proprietors themselves, finding that business might be done in this way, started in the line, and being in general men of some means, established it as a regular trade. The van proprietors at the present time do the greater part of the business, but there may occasionally be seen, employed in this traffic, all sorts of conveyances, from the donkey-cart of the costermonger, or dock-labourer, the latter of whom endeavours to make up for the miserable pittance he can earn at the rate of fourpence per hour, by the profits of this calling, to the aristocratic van drawn along by two plump, well-fed horses, the property of a man worth £800 or £900. The van of the street-seller of coals is easily distinguished from the wagon of the regular merchant. The merchant's wagon is always loaded with sacks standing perpendicularly. It is drawn by four immense horses, and is driven along by a gaunt figure begrimed with coal-dust, and sporting ankle-boots, or shoes and gaiters, white, or what ought to be white, stockings, velvet knee-breeches, short tarry smock-coat, and a huge fantail hat slouching halfway down his back. The street-seller's vehicle, on the contrary, has the coals shot into it without sacks, while on a tailboard extending behind lie weights and scales. It is most frequently drawn by one horse, but sometimes by two, with bells above their collars jingling as they go, or else the driver at intervals rings a bell, like a dustman's, to announce his approach to the neighbourhood. The street-sellers formerly purchased their coals from any of the merchants along the riverside. 
generally the refuse or what remained after the best had been picked out by screening or otherwise, but always taking a third or fourth quality as most suitable for their purpose. But since the erection of machinery for getting coals out of the ships in the Regent's Canal Basin, they have resorted to that place, as the coals are at once shot from the box in which they are raised from the hold of the ship into the carter van, saving all the trouble of being filled in sacks by coal porters, and carried on their backs from the ship's barge or heap, preparatory to their being emptied into the van, thus getting them at a cheaper rate, and consequently being enabled to realise a greater profit. Since the introduction of inland coals, also by the railways, many of the street sellers have either wholly or in part taken to sell them on account of the lower rate at which they can be purchased. Sometimes they vend them unmixed, but more frequently they mix them up with the small of north country coals of better quality, and palm off the compound as genuine wall's end direct from the ship. This, together with short weights, being in fact the principal source of their profit. It occasionally happens that a merchant purchases in the market a cargo of coals which turns out to be damaged, very small, or of inferior quality. In such cases he usually refuses to take them, and it is difficult to dispose of them in any regular way of trade. Such cargoes, or parts of cargoes, are consequently at times bought up by some of the more wealthy van proprietors engaged in the coal line, who realise on them a great profit. To commence business as a street seller of coals requires little capital beyond the possession of a horse and cart. The merchants in all cases let street sellers have any quantity of coals they may require till they are able to dispose of them. And the street trade being a ready money business, they can go on from day to day or from week to week, according to their pre-arrangements, so that as far as the commodity in which they deal is concerned, there is no outlay of capital whatever. There are about 30 two-horse vans continually engaged in this trade, the price of each van being £70. This gives £2,100. 100 horses at £20 each, £1,200. 160 carts at £10 each, £1,600. 160 horses at £10 each, £1,600. 20 donkey or pony carts, value a pound each, £20. 20 donkeys or ponies at a pound and ten shillings each, £30, making a total of 210 vehicles continually employed, which, with the horses and so on, may be valued at £6,550. This sum, with the price of 210 sets of weights and scales, at a pound and ten shillings per set, £315, makes a total of £6,865. This may be fairly set down as the gross amount of capital at present employed in the street sale of coals. It is somewhat difficult to ascertain correctly the amount of coals distributed in this way among the poorer classes, but I have found that they generally take two turns per day, that is, they go to the wharfs in the morning, 
get their vans or carts loaded, and proceed on their various rounds. This first turn usually occupies them till dinner time, after which they get another load, which is sufficient to keep them employed till night. Now, if we allow each van to carry two and a half tons, it will make for all 150 tons per day, or 900 tons per week. In the same manner, allowing the 160 carts to carry a ton each, it will give 320 tons per day, or 1,920 tons per week, and the 20 pony carts, half a ton each, 40 tons per day, or 240 tons per week, making a total of 3,060 tons per week, or 159,120 tons per annum. This quantity purchased from the merchants at 14 shillings sixpence per ton amounts to 115,362 pounds annually, and sold at the rate of a shilling per hundredweight, or one pound per ton, leaves five shillings sixpence per ton profit, or a total profit of £43,758, and this profit, divided according to the foregoing account, gives the subjoined amounts, namely, to each two-horse van regularly employed throughout the year, a profit of £429, to each one-horse cart, ditto ditto, £171.12, to each pony cart, ditto ditto, one hundred and twenty one pounds twelve shillings, from which must of course be made the necessary deductions for the keep of the animals and the repair of vehicles, harness, and so on. The keep of a good horse is ten shillings per week, a pony six shillings. Three horses can be kept for the price of two, and so on. The more there are, the less cost for each. The localities where the street sellers of coals may most frequently be met with are Blackwall, Poplar, Limehouse, Stepney, St George's East, Twig Folly, Bethnal Green, Spitalfields, Shoreditch, Kingsland, Haggerston and Islington. It is somewhat remarkable that they are almost unknown on the south side of the Thames and are seldom or never to be encountered in the low streets and lanes in Westminster lying contiguous to the river, nor in the vicinity of Marylebone, nor in any place farther west than Shoreditch. This is on account of the distance from the Regent's Canal Basin, precluding the possibility of their making more than one turn in the day, which would greatly diminish their profits, even though they might get a higher price for their commodity. It may be observed that the foregoing statement in figures is rather under the mark than otherwise, as it is founded on the amount of coals purchased at a certain rate and sold at a certain profit, without taking into account any of the dodges which almost all classes of coal dealers, from the highest to the lowest, are known to practice, so that the rate of profit arising from this business may be fairly supposed to amount to much more than the above account can show in figures. I received the following statement from a person engaged in the street traffic. Quote, I kept a coal shed and greengrocer's shop, and as I had a son grown up, I wanted to get something for him to do. So about six years ago, having a pony and cart, and seeing others selling coals through the street, 
I thought I'd make him try his hand at it. I went to Mr. B's at Whiting's Wharf, and got the cart loaded, and sent my son round our own neighbourhood. I found that he soon disposed of them, and so he went on by degrees. People think we get a great deal of profit, but we don't get near as much as they think. I paid sixteen shillings a ton all the winter for coals, and sold them for a shilling a hundred. And when I came to feed the horse, I found that he'll nearly eat it all up. A horse's belly is not so easy to fill. I don't think my son earns much more now, in summer, than feeds the horse. It's different in winter. He does not sell more than half a ton a day, now the weather's so warm. In winter he can always sell a ton at the least, and sometimes two, and on the Saturday he might sell three or four. My cart holds a ton. The vans hold from two to three tons. I can't exactly tell how many people are engaged in selling coals in the street, but there are a great many, that's certain. About eight o'clock, what a number of carts and vans you'll see about the Regent's Canal. They like to get away before breakfast, because then they may have another turn after dinner. There's a great many go to other places for coals. The people who have vans do much better than those with the carts, because they carry so much that they save time. There are no great secrets in our business. We haven't the same chance of doing the thing as the merchants have. They can mix the coals up as they like for their customers and sell them for best. All we can do is to buy a low quality. Then we may lose our customers if we play any tricks. To be sure, after that, we can go to parts where we're not known. I don't use lightweights, but I know it's done by a good many, and they mix up small coals a good deal, and that, of course, helps their profits. My son generally goes four or five miles before he sells a ton of coals and in summer weather, a great deal farther. It's hard-earned money that's got at it, I can tell you. My cart is worth £12. I have a van worth £20. I wouldn't take £20 for my horse. My van holds two tons of coals, and the horse draws it easily. I send the van out in the winter, when there's a good call, but in the summer I only send it out on the Saturday. I never calculated how much profit I made. I haven't the least idea how much is got by it, but I'm sure there's not near as much as you say. Why, if there was, I ought to have made a fortune by this time. Note, it is right I should state that I received the foregoing account of the profits of the street trade in coals from one practically and eminently acquainted with it. End note. Some in the trade have done very well, but they were well enough off before. I know very well I'll never make a fortune at anything. I'll be satisfied if I keep moving along, so as to keep out of the union. End quote. As to the habits of the street sellers of coals, they are as various as their different circumstances will admit. But they closely resemble each other in one general characteristic, their provident and careful habits. Many of them have risen from struggling costermongers to be men of substance, with carts, vans, and horses of their own. Some of the more wealthy of the class may be met with now and then in the parlours of respectable public houses, where they smoke their pipes, sip their brandy and water, and are remarkable for the shrewdness of their remarks. They mingle freely with the respectable tradesmen of their own localities, and may be seen, especially on the Sunday afternoons, with their wives 
and showily dressed daughters in the gardens of the New Globe or Green Dragon, the Cremorne and Vauxhall of the East. I visited the house of one of those who I was told had originally been a costermonger. The front portion of the shop was almost filled with coals, he having added to his occupation of street-seller the business of a coal-shed man. This his wife and a little boy managed in his absence, while, true to his early training, the window-ledge and a bench before it were heaped up with cabbages, onions, and other vegetables. In an open space opposite his door, I observed a one-horse cart, and two or three trucks, with his name painted thereon. At his invitation I passed through what may be termed the shop, and entered the parlour, a neat room nicely carpeted, with a round table in the centre, chairs ranged primly round the walls, and a long looking-glass, reflecting the china shepherds and shepherdesses on the mantelpiece, while framed and glazed all around were highly coloured prints, among which Dick Turpin, in flash-red coat, gallantly clearing the tall gate in his celebrated ride to York, and Jack Shepherd lowering himself down from the window of the lock-up house, were most conspicuous. In the window lay a few books, and one or two old copies of Bell's Life. Among the well-thumbed books I picked out the Newgate Calendar, and the Calendar of Horrors, as he called it, of which he expressed a very high opinion. "'Lord bless you!' he exclaimed. "'Them their stories is the wonderfulest in the world. I'd never have believed it if I hadn't seed it with my own two highs. But there can't be no mistake when I read it out of the book, can there now? I just ask her that there plain question.' Of his career he gave me the following account. Quote, "'I was at one time a coster.' Regular brought up to the business. The times was good then, but lor, we used to lush at sitch a rate. About ten year ago, I says to myself, I says, Bill, I'm blowed if this year game will do any longer. I had a good moke, note donkey, end note, and a tidyish box of a cart. So what does I do but goes and sees one of my old pals that gets into the coal line somehow. He and I goes to the bell and seven mackerels in the Mile End Road and then he tells me all he knowed, and takes me along with hisself, and from that time I sticks to the coals. I never cared much about the lush myself, and when I got away from the old uns, I didn't mind it nohow. But Jack, my pal, was a awfully lushy cove. He couldn't do no good at nothink whatsoever. He died, they say, of Lyrium Trumans. Note, not understanding what he meant, I inquired of what it was he died. End note. Why, of Lyrium Truman's, which I takes to be too much of Truman and Hanbury's heavy. So I takes varnin by poor Jack, and cuts the lush. But if you thinks as we don't enjoy ourselves sometimes, I tells you you don't know nothing about it. I'm getting on like a regular house of fire. End quote. End of section 14